0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxus. Today we are continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. And just to tell you, we have a lot to cover this morning, and I have usually a large amount of stuff. We're going to finish off Absalom today, which means we're going to be going from 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 24, all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 8. That means if you're looking at your sermon outline that is in your bulletin right now, and you're thinking, man, I think my eyes are going bad. It's not your eyes. I had to print it in a really small font to get all the text on the page. So don't go to the optometrist this week. Just wait till next week and you'll realize your vision all of a sudden drastically improved when we have less text to cover. And I'll have a little bigger set of fonts on there for you. Now, if you like action, you came to the right Sunday. Uh, Because this text is a little bit of a mixture. It's sort of like a, a Jason Bourne movie, a Mission Impossible movie, all rolled into one. We have war, we have death, we have killing, we have last minute rescues and unexpected defeats. If you want all that kind of action, you came to the right time for that. Now, Some of you I know are new and you haven't been with us for previous parts of this study. So let me take a moment just to briefly catch us up to where we are and then we'll jump right into our study today. Second Samuel, as a book, is about the story of the rise and the fall of King David. The first half of the book, David is incredibly successful, conquers all kinds of kingdoms, becomes sort of a, a one of the almost a world ruler. And then, when you get to Second Samuel chapter eleven, he makes a decisive choice where everything falls apart. He sees a lovely woman named Bathsheba who is already married to another man, and he has an affair with her, and she becomes pregnant. And then to cover the evidence and to sort of sweep things under the rug, he bumps off her husband, a man named Uriah. And as you would guess, God is not real excited about that. And he's a little bit upset, and so he sends a prophet to David. The prophet's name is Nathan. And Nathan calls David on the carpet for what he's done. David repents of his sin. He confesses his sin. And God graciously forgives his sin. He will not die. He will continue to remain as king. But that does not mean that he will escape the consequences of what he's done. That's very important. One of those consequences is that the sword will not depart from his family. His family from that point forward will have constant infighting in it. Another consequence, as we learned, is that as he has taken Uriah's life, he will lose the life of four of his own children. The first son to die was the son he conceived with Bathsheba as an infant The second son to die was his oldest son, a man named Amnon. Today, the third son will die. It's currently his oldest living son, a boy named Absalom. One message hangs like an umbrella over all of these chapters, and it comes at us screaming at us as you look at David's story. It's simply this. The pleasures of sin do not outweigh the long term painful consequences of sin. Isn't that true? The brief pleasure of sin cannot outweigh the long term painful consequences. Here it is, almost a decade after he's had his affair with Bathsheba, and he is still paying the consequences of his sin. His son, who is running a coup to overthrow him, is one of those consequences a decade later. Very, very difficult. And I think this is a message that we can remember as well. Now in the recent chapters, we've seen that God is at work behind the scenes in life, which is a great reminder for us, because He is at work behind the scenes in our world as well. Sometimes God is at work behind the scenes to discipline His people out of love, but other times He's at work behind the scenes to deliver His people. (laughs) Last week, we saw God at work behind the scenes to help deliver David. When Absalom had his rebellion, Absalom went to Jerusalem. Absalom has set himself up in Jerusalem. It had worked that he had two former counselors of David that were giving him advice. One was Ahithophel, who was against David, and one was a man named Hushai, who was working deep undercover for David. Pretending to be loyal to Absalom, but actually loyal to David. And Ahithophel and Hushai both gave Absalom advice. And God worked in Absalom's heart to have him prefer the foolish advice instead of the wise advice. The foolish advice that Hushai gave him hoping to destroy his plans. And that advice WAS THAT RATHER THAN ATTACKING AND DESTROYING DAVID IMMEDIATELY WHEN HE WAS ESCAPING FROM THE CITY, NO, YOU SHOULD WAIT A WHILE. WAIT A LONG TIME AND BUILD A VAST ARMY, AND THEN AFTER A WHILE, THEN GO AFTER YOUR FATHER. AND THAT PERIOD OF TIME, THIS WAITING THAT HUSHAI SUGGESTED, IS VERY CRUCIAL. GOD IS GOING TO USE THAT TO GIVE DAVID THE ABILITY TO REGROUP AND REORGANIZE. Last week, when we finished, David had escaped from Jerusalem. He made it to the fords of the Jordan. And as we closed those verses, David heard that he needed to cross the Jordan River. And he crossed the Jordan River by night. And we pick up in verse 24. It begins with this. David and his people regrouped. It says then David came to Mahaneh. You wonder where's Mahaneh? We'll go ahead and show you the map. You can see Jerusalem in the lower left-hand corner. He made it to the fords of the Jordan we saw last week, crossed over the Jordan by night, then he went up the side of the Jordan Valley and went to Mahaneh in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, Mahaneh was originally the capital city for Ishbosheth. If you know your scriptures, you know that King Saul had a number of sons, they were all dead. The last one to die was Ishbosheth. He set up a rival kingdom to King David. David had been crowned king at Hebron. Ishbosheth set up a rival kingdom at Mahanaim. And eventually that ended, and the, the two kingdoms came together. Mahanaim literally means in Hebrew two camps. When it was originally established, it was the second camp, it was the division of the nation. Now, David is there and it's two camps again, except this time it's David's camp. And the one who has rebelled against him is his own son. We read this, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zerui, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Let's begin at the top. Absalom and all Israel uh, crossed the Jordan with him. Apparently, this means Absalom followed some version of Hushai's advice last week. Remember, Hushai's advice was, Take a while, have a general draft of all the men of the nation who then join your army and will fall on David like the dew falls on the ground at night. Give him no place to go. So we see that all the men of Israel are with Absalom at this point. The other thing we learned is that Absalom has a, an army general named Amasa. Joab, which is the original army general, was loyal to David, and we'll learn more about him in a few minutes. But Absalom needed a new general. He gets Amasa, and it's some kind of interesting genealogy. Here's the fun point, and I'll skip all the details on it. Amasa is David's nephew and Joab's cousin. So this battle is literally what you call family feud. They're actually related to one another when they go to war. Absalom and all the men of Israel cross the Jordan, and then they go to the land of Gilead. Let me show you where that is. You can see Gilead is up there. It's that the top red circle. Let um, me read this. Oh, let me one more thing. At this point, things do not look good for David. David has crossed the Jordan River. We know at that time he was weary, he was exhausted, he was worn out. He's escaped to Mahanaim uh, with his wives and his children and some other folks. Now the entire nation, all the men of the nation have gathered against him. Things look very hopeless for God's king, look completely hopeless for God's kingdom. But you and I know... It's hopeless situations that God loves to go at work in. And God loves to work behind the scenes. We've seen that in uh, previous chapters. Now let's see how God goes to work once again, behind the scenes, to save his king and his kingdom from what looks like a completely hopeless mess. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Mekir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds and basins and earthen vessels, and wheat and barley and flour and parched grain, and beans and lentils and honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd. For David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty, in the wilderness, David arrives at Mahanaim. And we know he was already exhausted and fatigued when he crossed the Jordan River. He's completely worn out and hungry by the time he makes it to Mahanaim. But here is what's happened. Word is starting to spread of what Absalom has done for him, to him and that he is on the run for his life. And just as God worked in the heart of Absalom, to having him prefer poor advice. God is at work in the hearts of the people around David in this area who have sympathy for him and care for him. And it gives us the name of three significant, powerful, and wealthy men in the region who go out of their way to provide for David and his family in time of need. This is God working in their hearts. The first one is a man named Shobi. Incidentally, uh, he is a brother of Hanan. David fought a war against his brother in 2 Samuel chapter 10 and completely defeated Hanan and the Ammonites. Apparently what happened after David defeated the Ammonites, he installed Shobi as the governor over the city of Rabbah in Ammonite territory and David and Shobi have a healthy and good relationship because of the kindness of King David that he showed to him. So when he knows that David's in need, he travels what is 21 miles with supplies for him and his family at that time. Another person is Makir. We've seen him earlier in the text as well. Makir was the man whom Mephibosheth was originally hiding with. Remember when there, David was trying to find if there was any remaining ancestors or children of Jonathan in King Saul's line because he didn't know of anybody. He eventually found Mephibosheth hiding with Makir in what is truly a desert land. He was a wealthy man who lived in the desert. David didn't kill Mephibosheth, but he showed him kindness. He put him in charge of King Saul's farms over top of Ziba, his servant. He put Mephibosheth, gave him a seat at the king's table permanently. Makir was so taken back by King David's kindness to Mephibosheth that he went from an enemy of David to a loyal follower of David. He hears that what has happened to David, and he travels over 30 miles with food and supplies at this point to help David in his time of need. The third wealthy, powerful man is a man named Barzillai. No, we have not seen him earlier in the text, but we will see him again later in the text. A wealthy man who once again is moved to help David in his time of need. So... Um, It's interesting how God is at work, in the background, helping David and providing food for David, and it all came from God moving the hearts of some wealthy and powerful people in the region. Now we get to the exciting stuff. The battle, point two. WE DON'T KNOW HOW MUCH TIME PASSED BETWEEN THE END OF CHAPTER 17 AND THE BATTLE THAT BEGAN AT THE BEGINNING HERE IN CHAPTER 18, BUT WE KNOW GOD WAS AT WORK BEHIND THE SCENES, IN PARTICULAR WITH THIS LENGTHY PAUSE THAT Absalom TOOK FROM Hushai's ADVICE. It BEGINS WITH THIS, THEN DAVID MUSTERED THE MEN WHO WERE WITH HIM AND SET OVER THEM COMMANDERS OF THOUSANDS AND COMMANDERS OF HUNDREDS. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zerui, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Etai, the Gittite. As David prepares for battle, he divides the people who are with him, which is apparently a very large number up, under commanders, and puts them in groups of hundreds and thousands. And if you were with us last week, you're going to find yourself Scratching your head a little bit. Wasn't it last week that we said when David left, most Bible scholars believe when he fled from Jerusalem, there was 2,000 or less people that fled with him at that time across the desert. And in that 2,000 number were women and were children, not just men. Where did all these other people come from that he could assemble into an army? You notice all of a sudden the name of Joab is mentioned. Joab is the commander of his army. Abishai is second in command of the army. Apparently David has re-linked up with his army. I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but I think this is helpful to know. When Absalom kicked off his coup at Hebron, and then he went to Jerusalem, remember David fled? didn't even attempt to fight him because the army was not with him at that time. The army was apparently on a mission on the east side of the Jordan River. That's why David seems to have fled in that direction, to relink up with his army. This pause has allowed David to relink with his army, which is a huge difference. HOW MANY TIMES HAVE THE ARMIES OF ISRAEL LOST UNDER DAVID'S LEADERSHIP? HOW MANY? ZERO. BIG DIFFERENCE AT THIS POINT. YOU SEE HOW GOD IS AT WORK BEHIND THE SCENES? ORDERING THINGS, ALLOWING THINGS TO COME TOGETHER AT JUST THE RIGHT TIME? And David divides the army up into three sections. Joab is commanding one section, and I suppose Joab is actually the commander of over, over all the sections. Abishai, his brother, commands another, and then Atai, the Gittite, commands a third section. That's interesting. We know Atai is actually a Philistine, is a Gittite. He had brought 600 men with him, we saw originally. But apparently he commands a whole division of foreigners who have agreed to fight with David and for David, like the Carathites, the Pelethites, all these others. He's got an own army of just foreigners to help him. We also meet... um, Oh, I should mention this before I go too much farther. You have David and you have Joab, who is an experienced army commander with experienced soldiers. But think about Absalom's army. It's under a commander named Amasa, who has never really commanded before. And it's all drafted men who have no experience. Are you beginning to see how God is putting his finger on the scales on one side? Yes, he's working behind the scenes. Then we read this. And the king said to the men, Well, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. And the king said to them, Well, whatever seems best to you, I will do. David originally planned to lead the army, but the men realized this is like a game of chess. Once the king is dead... The whole game is over. So rather than have you, David, in the fight, because everyone's going to want to kill you, we'll hide you from the fight. That way, you can be safe. Incidentally, it's interesting what Hushai last week said to Absalom Oh, Absalom, don't hide from the fight. You need to be in the center of the fight, in the front of the fight. And that's what Absalom's going to do. He's going to put himself into the battle. But remember, this is like a game of chess. If you kill the king, the kingdom is over with. But if you kill Absalom, the coup is over with. He seems to have missed that. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And I thought to myself, just a few days before this, David left Jerusalem with his head covered and weeping. Don't you think it was so incredibly encouraging to him? Here a few days later, that God has assembled an army around him, an army that is willing to risk their lives to fight for him. Imagine what it would be like in David's shoes in that moment. To see God have gathered all those people around him to come to his aid and come to his defense. Now we get to something that's a little strange. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and, and Ittai, now deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. This is weird. GO EASY ON ABSALOM. DUDE, HE'S THE ENEMY. HE MURDERED HIS OLDER BROTHER. HE'S GOING TO BE THE SOURCE OF THOUSANDS OF DEATHS ON THIS DAY. HE'S THE ONE BEHIND THE COUP. BUT DAVID IS SPEAKING LIKE A FATHER AT THIS POINT. HE'S NOT SPEAKING LIKE A KING. SO WHEN YOU GO AND FIGHT THE ENEMY GUYS, DON'T HURT THEM, WHATEVER YOU DO. (laughs) SORT OF STRANGE. By the way he's called a young man he's not a young man at this point we know Absalom has at least 4 kids he's 30 years old he's a grown man So the army went into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David and the loss there was great on that day 20,000 men and the battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Oh, a lot of fun stuff going on here. The location of this battle was known as the Forest of Ephraim. Now, let me show you where it is. I'll give you the first map. You can see Absalom and his men are in the north, David and his men a little bit in the southeast. The forest of Ephraim is right in that center section. It's a very rugged, hilly country. Uh, It's called the forest of Ephraim, even though it's located in the land of Gilead, because originally this is where the people of Israel, or people of Ephraim, excuse me, fought with Jephthah in Judges chapter 1. And lost. So that's how it ended up with that name. Let me show you a little bit what this forest looks like. I know this picture does not do it justice, but the what you need to know, it's very rugged country with a lot of pits, a lot of cliffs, a lot of steep ravines. It's heavily wooded with a lot of hardwoods, very thick vegetation and, and trees there. SO IT'S DIFFICULT TO WALK THROUGH, IT'S DIFFICULT TO MOVE THROUGH. AND THIS WAS ACTUALLY CHOSEN BY DAVID AND HIS MEN ON PURPOSE. REMEMBER, ABSALOM'S PLAN WAS TO HAVE SUCH A LARGE ARMY THEY COULD SURROUND DAVID AND JUST FALL UPON DAVID AND SNUFF HIM OUT. WHEN YOU CAN BARELY MAKE IT THROUGH THE FOREST, YOU CAN'T EASILY SURROUND A PERSON. So David and his men as experienced soldiers will have an advantage in this kind of environment, while Absalom and his unexperienced soldiers have a disadvantage. The Bible says the loss that day was great. The Hebrew word great is used to describe a loss only one other time in the books of First and 2 Samuel. It's used to describe the loss that was experienced by Israel when the sons of Eli were taking the ark into battle. And remember how God fought against his own people at that time, so the Israelites lost terribly. Same thing happening here. God is fighting against his own people, well he's fighting against Absalom and all the men of Israel so the loss is terribly great. 23 thousand people die. Many Bible scholars believe that that twenty thousand is just the number of soldiers that Absalom lost on that day. Not counting David's men. And it says this very interesting line. More were devoured that day by the forest than by the sword. The Hebrew says that the trees literally devoured people alive. NOW YOU'RE WONDERING, WHAT DOES THAT MEAN? THE THOUGHT CAME TO MIND, AND I KNOW THIS IS SORT OF A BAD ILLUSTRATION, BUT I'LL TRY IT. HOW MANY OF YOU GUYS HAVE EVER SEEN THE CHRONICLES OF NARNIA MOVIES? ANYBODY? YEAH, THANK YOU. YEAH. YOU GUYS HAVE SEEN THE CHRONICLE. YOU GUYS HAVE SEEN THE PRINCE CASPIAN ONE? DO YOU REMEMBER THE PRINCE CASPIAN IN THE FINAL BATTLE AND THE ARMIES OF ASLAN ARE LOSING AND ALL OF A SUDDEN THE TREES COME ALIVE? And the trees get into the battle? I think, I may be wrong, but I think that's where, this is the passage where C.S. Lewis got the idea of the trees literally devouring the enemy that he used in that book. I could be wrong, but somehow God used this thick forest, this foliage, to cause more deaths in Absalom's army than the sword even did. People ran into these trees and found themselves impaled on the trees. Uh, They found themselves falling with the trees. They found themselves into the pits with the trees. If you're like me, you're thinking, well, how does God, in his providential ways, use trees to get rid of the vast majority of Absalom's army? The text moves from the general principle about what God did with the forest to a specific example of how God used the forest. So we can see what this kind of thing looks like. It's called the death of Absalom, which is our next point. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that he was under went on. I love the way that the author writes that. Absalom just happened to run into the servants of David. Any chance occurrence here? God is at work behind the scenes. And he's riding his mule, which is the royal horse, which is sort of funny. We know Absalom, as we've seen, is all into looks. He's not into practicality. Remember when he was in Jerusalem, he would ride the chariot through the streets, even though you could never use a chariot on the hillside in Israel because it's too rocky and too hilly, but it looked really good. Here is Absalom riding his royal horse through a thickly wooded forest. Does that make any sense? Absolutely not. But it looks really good. The way I picture it, Absalom is on his royal horse. He sees the men of David. He giddy-ups the horse and immediately begins bolting through this forest with all of these trees and all these limbs. Absalom looks behind him to see how close the men of David are. And your mother always told you that when you're driving, keep your eyes on the road. Because if you don't, it's going to be certain disaster. And that's what happens to Absalom. HIS HORSE DUCKS UNDER AN OAK TREE. HE'S LOOKING THE WRONG DIRECTION. THE BRANCHES GO RIGHT UP THE BACK OF HIS HEAD, INTO HIS HAIR, AND PLUCK HIM RIGHT OFF HIS HORSE. AND THERE HE IS, suspended BETWEEN HEAVEN AND EARTH, HANDS, ARMS, FLAILING, LOOKING LIKE A BUG. NOW THE INTERESTING PART WAS REMEMBER WHAT Absalom PRIDED HIMSELF IN EARLIER. HIS LONG, FLOWING, FLUFFY HAIR. Once a year he had his hair cut and he weighed out as five pounds, we learned. So what was his source of pride, joy, and arrogance actually ends up being the source of his downfall as he's caught in between heaven and earth by his hair in a tree. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom just like hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, what? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to have get, to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand... If I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. A soldier looks over, sees Absalom doing the bug thing in the air, goes and tells Joab, and Joab's like, why didn't you take this guy out? I would have paid you for it. Four pieces of silver Uh, 10 pieces of silver, which is about 4 ounces, by the way, in in weight-wise. And the guy says, you know what? If I had 1,000 pieces of silver, which is roughly 24 pounds, I would have never done it. Because David told us not to do it. But while that soldier has some good morals, Joab honestly doesn't, because this is what we read. Joab said, I'm not going to waste time like this with you and he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the yoke. Then ten young men, that is, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. I don't know if this is exactly the way it happened, but I'll give you my take on this. It says that Joab took three javelins and put it into the heart of Absalom. But somehow, after those three javelins, Absalom was still alive. If he put them into the literal heart, he wouldn't be alive. That that Hebrew word for heart can also mean this midsection. So he put three javelins into his midsection. I think at that point, they probably cut him out of the tree. He's on the ground. Is he going anywhere? Not with three javelins sticking out of his body, but he's still alive, and at that point, It says, ten of Joab's armor bearers took his life. Why was it ten on one? Because that way, no one person can be said to have killed him. Joab instantly realizes, remember, it's a game of chess. Once you've got the king, it's game over. They've just killed Absalom. It's game over. Then Joab blew the trumpet. And the troops came back from pursuing Israel. FOR JOAB RESTRAINED THEM. THEN THEY DECIDE IT'S TIME TO BURY HIM. THEY TOOK Absalom AND THREW HIM INTO A GREAT PIT IN THE FOREST AND RAISED OVER HIM A VERY GREAT HEAP OF STONES. AND ALL ISRAEL FLED EVERYONE TO HIS OWN HOUSE. I WOULD TELL YOU THIS IS A PILE WITH A PURPOSE. There's significance to them putting a great heap of stones over top of Absalom's body. Earlier in the Old Testament, when you find someone who sinned greatly, one of the ways they buried him was putting a great big pile over them as a monument to their shame. An example of this is Achan. Remember when the Israelites came into the Promised Land and they Fought the Battle of Jericho, and after the Battle of Jericho, Achan kept the gold bars and the robe. And then, when they went to Ai, the next city, they lost miserably because God was now fighting against them instead of fighting for them. And they eventually found out it was Achan, and Achan was killed. And what did they do? Look what they did they put a big pile of stones over Achan's body. And they raised over him, that is Achan, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. This was a monument, so people would always remember that Achan was an enemy of God. It was a monument of shame. This is the same kind of monument that the people erected over Absalom. Not a monument to his greatness, but a monument to his shame. BUT INTERESTINGLY, THE NEXT VERSE TELLS US THAT ABSALOM WAS INTO MONUMENTS. HE WAS TRYING TO MAKE A MONUMENT TO HIS GREATNESS. NOW Absalom, IN HIS LIFETIME HAD TAKEN AND SET UP FOR HIMSELF THE PILLAR THAT IS IN THE KING'S VALLEY. FOR HE SAID, I HAVE NO SON TO KEEP MY NAME IN REMEMBRANCE. AND HE CALLED THE PILLAR AFTER HIS OWN NAME, AND IT'S CALLED ABSALOM'S MONUMENT TO THIS DAY. Now you remember, in 2 Samuel 14, when we first met Absalom, we learned he had three sons. Apparently, all three of those sons have died. So he tried to set up a monument about his greatness in the King's Valley. Oh, he ended up with a monument. It's a monument to his own shame. That's the kind of monument that the people gave him. Incidentally, Whenever you find somebody who's trying to build a monument for themselves, you should start to worry. People do not need to build monuments to themselves. That's called a big ego, isn't it? One thing I'd like to point out for you is the amazing amount of reversals you see in this, which is a clue that God is at work behind the scenes. Absalom tried to build a monument to his greatness. He ends up with a monument to his shame. Joab was the one who brought Absalom back and who believed in him and gave him a second chance. But Joab is the one who ends up taking his life. Absalom's hair, his source of his vanity and pride, ends up being the source of his death and fall. You see how God is at work flipping everything one after the other on its head? Now we get to what I call the messengers. Absalom's dead, THE WAR IS OVER. SOMEBODY NEEDS TO TELL DAVID THE GOOD NEWS AND THE BAD NEWS. THEN Ahimaaz, THE SON OF Zadok, SAID, LET ME RUN AND CARRY THE NEWS TO THE KING THAT THE LORD HAS DELIVERED HIM FROM THE HANDS OF HIS ENEMIES. WE FIRST MET THIS GUY LAST WEEK. HE'S THE SON OF THE PRIEST. I THINK HE'S PART OF THE JERUSALEM TRACK TEAM. HE WAS THE GUY THAT RAN 20 MILES FROM JERUSALEM TO THE JORDAN RIVER TO TELL DAVID THAT HE NEEDED TO CROSS THE RIVER DURING THE NIGHT. HE CARRIED BAD NEWS LAST TIME. HE WANTS TO CARRY THE GOOD NEWS THIS TIME. AND JOAB SAID TO HIM, YOU ARE NOT TO CARRY THE NEWS TODAY. YOU MAY CARRY NEWS ANOTHER DAY, BUT TODAY YOU SHALL CARRY NO NEWS, BECAUSE THE KING'S SON IS DEAD. THEN JOAB SAID TO THE CUSHITE, GO, TELL THE KING WHAT YOU HAVE SEEN. AND THE CUSHITE BOWED BEFORE JOAB AND RAN. JOAB SAYS, AHIMAZ, YOU DON'T WANT TO BE THE GUY THE KING ALWAYS REMEMBERS AS THE ONE WHO TOLD HIM HIS SON IS DEAD. YOU DON'T WANT TO HAVE THAT ASSOCIATION IN HIS MEMORY WITH YOU. LET'S SEND THIS GUY THE CUSHITE. HE CAN RUN. YOU WONDERED WHO THE CUSHITE IS. YOU CHECK THAT OUT. THAT IS THE AREA OF MODERN-DAY SUDAN. YOU GUYS EVER SEEN THOSE AFRICAN RUNNERS THAT CAN RUN ALL DAY? I'd go on forever, that's the Cushite guy, right there. That's what he, that's what he is. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, again, said again to Joab, Oh, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the news? Well, come what may, he said, I will run. So finally, after being pestered, Long enough, Joab says to him, okay, you can run. Uh, Joab is probably thinking, don't worry, he's never going to catch that Cushite guy. Those guys are really fast. He's got a huge head start. No big deal. But then we read this. Then Ahimaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Another reversal. Let's look at this. YOU CAN SEE WHERE THE ORANGE AND THE GREEN LINES ARE CONNECTED TOGETHER. THAT'S ROUGHLY THE AREA WHERE THE, the NEWS STARTED, WHERE THEY HAD A RUN FROM. THE CUSHITE GOES THROUGH THE FOREST. SO IF YOU'RE TRYING TO THINK OF WHAT IT'S LIKE, IT'S LIKE THE STEEPLECHASE, EXCEPT IT'S NOT JUST THE PIT AND THE OBSTACLE, LIKE, ONCE AROUND THE TRACK. IT'S PIT AND OBSTACLE EVERYWHERE. SO THE CUSHITE IS NOT MAKING GOOD TIME, EVEN THOUGH HE HAS A SHORTER ROUTE. Ahimaaz GOES TO THE VALLEY runs on the flat so he can be in top gear the whole way through, and then through the valley up to Mahane, still running in top gear. Longer route, but going a lot faster. And we read what happens next. Oop. Here we read a grieving father. Now, David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, Well, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. And the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, Well, he's a good man. He comes with good news. So you can picture the watchman on top of the city gate. He sees one man coming on the horizon, getting closer and closer. At least it's not the entire army in retreat, right? That's good. Then he sees another man coming from the other direction. And he identifies eventually the first man as Ahimas because of the way he runs. Did you know certain people have a certain gait about the way they run? Have you ever seen that? You can't quite see his face, but you can tell by the way, he does his steps, that this is Ahimas." The Ahimaz cried out to the king when he arrived, "All is well. AND HE BOWED BEFORE THE KING WITH HIS FACE TO THE EARTH. AND HE SAID, BLESSED BE THE LORD YOUR GOD, WHO HAS DELIVERED UP THE MEN WHO RAISED THEIR HAND AGAINST MY LORD THE KING. AND THE KING SAID, WELL, IS IT WELL WITH the YOUNG MAN, Absalom?" AND Ahimaaz ANSWERED, WHEN JOAB SENT THE KING'S SERVANT, YOUR SERVANT, I SAW A GREAT COMMOTION, BUT I DO NOT KNOW WHAT IT WAS. AND THE KING SAID, TURN ASIDE AND STAND HERE so he turned aside and stood still. Ahimaaz gives the general report, but when David doesn't care about the general report, all he cares about is his boy. Now, does Ahimaaz know what happened? Dan says yes, he's right. Is Ahimaaz going to tell him? Absolutely not. Now, that is going to be significant later in this book. SO TUCK THAT AWAY IN THE BACK OF YOUR HEAD. AND BEHOLD, THE CUSHITE CAME, AND THE CUSHITE SAID, GOOD NEWS FOR MY LORD THE KING, FOR THE LORD HAS DELIVERED YOU THIS DAY FROM THE HAND OF ALL WHO ROSE UP AGAINST YOU. THE KING SAID TO THE CUSHITE, IS IT WELL WITH THE YOUNG MAN Absalom?" AND THE CUSHITE ANSWERED, MAY THE ENEMIES OF MY LORD THE KING AND ALL WHO RISE UP AGAINST YOU FOR EVIL. Be like that young man. In a very tactful way, he says, your son is dead. Now, what happens next are some of the most moving and emotional words of Scripture as David responds when he hears that news. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom! My son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, the question is why is David so overwhelmed with grief? I'm going to give you four quick answers, and you can dive into them more into your life groups this week. Number one, David was overwhelmed with grief because parents love their children. Isn't that true? His son may be a murderer. HIS SON MAY BE SOMEONE WHO IS PARTY TO THE DEATH OF 20,000 PEOPLE, BUT A FATHER ALWAYS LOVES HIS SON, DOESN'T HE? NUMBER TWO, DAVID WAS OVERWHELMED WITH GRIEF BECAUSE HE KNEW THE DEATH OF HIS SON WAS CONNECTED WITH HIS OWN SIN, DIDN'T HE? THIS IS PART OF THE CONSEQUENCE. HE WAS GOING TO LOSE FOUR OF HIS SONS. THIS IS THE THIRD ONE, AND I THINK THAT WAS PROBABLY JUST TEARING HIM APART ON THE INSIDE. NUMBER THREE, David was overwhelmed with grief because he feared his son would be eternally separated from him. This is important. When his first son died with Bathsheba, who was an infant, he got up after he died, he went back to life, and you notice what he said. He said, he will not come to be with me, but I will go to be with him. He was confident his infant son would be in heaven. But his adult son, when he died after all kinds of rebellion and murder, he did not think he would be with him in heaven at all. That is why he's extremely broken because he believes he'll be eternally separated from him. And lastly, David was overwhelmed with grief because he wished he had done things differently. I'll bet you he wished that he had not held his son at arm's length for so many years. And remember how he refused to talk to him when he was rebelling against him? I bet you he wished he had done things differently. Now, let's bring this to a wrap-up here, lost in grief. It was told, Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people and for the people heard that day. THE KING IS GRIEVING FOR HIS SON, AND THE PEOPLE STOLE INTO THE CITY THAT DAY AS PEOPLE STEAL IN WHO WERE ASHAMED WHEN THEY FLEE THE BATTLE. THE DAY OF JOY WAS TURNED INTO A DAY OF MOURNING. THEN JOAB CAME INTO THE HOUSE TO THE KING AND SAID, YOU HAVE TODAY COVERED WITH SHAME THE FACES OF ALL YOUR SERVANTS WHO HAVE THIS DAY SAVED YOUR LIFE AND THE LIVES OF YOUR SONS AND YOUR DAUGHTERS AND THE LIVES OF YOUR WIVES AND YOUR CONCUBINES. BECAUSE YOU LOVE THOSE WHO HATE YOU AND HATE THOSE WHO LOVE YOU. FOR YOU HAVE MADE IT CLEAR TODAY THAT COMMANDERS AND SERVANTS ARE NOTHING TO YOU. FOR TODAY I KNOW THAT IF ABSALOM WERE ALIVE AND ALL OF US WERE DEAD, THEN YOU WOULD BE PLEASED. NOW, THEREFORE, ARISE, GO OUT, AND SPEAK KINDLY TO YOUR SERVANTS. FOR I SWEAR BY THE LORD, IF YOU DO NOT GO, NOT A MAN WILL STAY WITH YOU THIS NIGHT and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. One important but yet quick application I think we should take from this. David... IN THE MIDST OF HIS GRIEF, HE WAS SO FOCUSED ON MOURNING AND SADNESS THAT HE NEGLECTED TO CARE FOR HIS SOLDIERS AND HIS PEOPLE. ISN'T THAT TRUE, FOLKS? THAT WE CAN GET SO FILLED WITH GRIEF THAT WE CAN BECOME VERY SELFISH, WE CAN BECOME VERY ISOLATED, WE CAN STOP CARING FOR OTHER PEOPLE AND LOVING OTHER PEOPLE BECAUSE WE'RE IN THE MIDDLE OF A PITY party. Now, I'm not saying David should not be sad. That's not my point. My point is that when he's sad, he's still the king. He still has people around him, people who need him. And what he needed was a friend to come into his life and sort of snap him out of that. Say, hey, you need to at least go back and see your people. David doesn't say anything to the people, but at least he shows up. Folks, that's true with us, isn't it? Sometimes when we go through great and difficult, painful times in life, we can become very self-centered and very uncaring towards others, and we need a friend sometimes to come into our world and to love us and sometimes snap us out of it a little bit. It reminded me of a friend of mine a few years ago. He went through a very bitter and extremely painful divorce. And when I heard about it, we had been friends, distant friends for a while, I decided that I'm going to get together with you once a week. We got together once a week for an entire year. And I was really proud of him, the way he handled my, his grief. At the time, we were building this stage, and we were painting this, this ceiling. And he said, you know, I'm home alone. I can just stay home and feel sorry for myself. He says, I'm going to come to church when I'm at night, and I'm going to paint this ceiling for you. Because that way, in my grief, I'm... Not isolating from myself from other people. In my grief, I want to be helping other people. If I have to cry, I can cry with a paintbrush in my hand. My friends, that was an amazing example to me of someone who didn't let his sandwich, his sadness, turn into selfishness, but cared about others. Here's the applications it's on the bottom of your outline for you. NUMBER ONE, THE CONSEQUENCES OF SIN ARE FAR GREATER AND LONG LASTING THAN THE PLEASURES OF SIN. WE'VE SEEN THAT VERY CLEARLY. NUMBER TWO, BE CAREFUL NOT TO LET OUR SADNESS TURN INTO SELF-CENTEREDNESS THAT KEEPS US FROM LOVING OTHERS. THAT'S WHAT WE SAW IN THAT SECTION IN CHAPTER 19. And I THINK IT GOES WITHOUT SAYING Absalom IS AN EXAMPLE OF WHY IT'S FOOLISH FOR CHILDREN TO REBEL AGAINST THEIR PARENTS, ISN'T IT? IT'S A PRETTY EXAMPLE OF A SON THAT REBELLED AGAINST HIS PARENTS THAT DIDN'T END WELL. And fourthly, as we've seen repeatedly again and again, God is behind the scenes caring for his people and rescuing them from disaster in ways they don't expect. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are large and in charge, that you were at work behind the scenes rescuing David in ways he didn't expect, that you are also large and in charge in our lives, AND WORKING BEHIND THE SCENE IN OUR LIVES. AND MANY TIMES, YOU ARE SO INCREDIBLY GOOD TO US. AND WHEN THE SON OF DAVID, JESUS CHRIST, HUNG ON THAT CROSS THAT YOU WERE LARGE AND IN CHARGE AND WORKING BEHIND THE SCENES IN WAYS THAT NONE OF US EXPECTED, AS HE DIED ON THE CROSS, PAYING FOR OUR SIN, AS HE BURST OUT OF THAT TOMB, RISING TO NEW LIFE, TO GIVE UNDESERVED LIFE Rescue and forgiveness to your people. Thank you so much for always working out your good plan behind the scenes and that we get to play a role in it, receiving your undeserved grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.